hope there was uh, you were able to worship the way I was just so moved seeing that song. It uh, doesn't the psalm doesn't end in despair. The Lord, the Messiah, in the depths of the earth and the dust in Sheol. But the Lord hears his prayer. Now hurry, O my strength to help. Be not far off, O Lord, but snatch my soul from raging dogs and spare me from the sword. From lion's mouth and oxen's horns, oh, save me, hear my prayer. This is Psalm 22. To all the church, my brethren dear, your name I will declare. As God raised Jesus up from the dead, the one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He raised him up so that he might declare God's name to his brothers, those he would call to himself brothers and sisters, to be his, to be part of the family of God. That's the greatest answer of prayer in the history of the world, and we thank the Lord for it. We'll now turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And then um, I would like to... It's not listed in the bulletin, but afterwards I would like to have a New Testament reading. It will be from Philippians chapter 2, so we'll turn us there after the reading from Exodus chapter 20, but uh, we'll just read one verse, the third commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now turning to a New Testament reading, which later I'll give some attention to, which enlightens this work, uh, this word, Philippians chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 3. Now, let me just read it from the beginning of chapter 2, and I'll read through uh, verse 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. 
Almighty God, open your word to us that we might behold great things so that we might know more what it is to be granted your name, to be those who are given your name in our redemption, but also, especially as we are called to be those who reverence your name, who do not take that name in vain. Cause us to be such as these, O Lord, for your own glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have considered already the first and the second commandments, and tonight we come to the third commandment, and there's a continuity moving through uh, these commandments. We've seen that the first commandment concerns who is to be worshipped, the Lord, and not the idols. The second commandment really shows us how we are to worship, and even commandments three and four really as well deal with the matter of worship. We will see certainly some liturgical, some worship-oriented elements from the third commandment this evening, and um, and I hope this is useful. It has been useful. I hope it's useful for you. It has been useful to me as a conceptual tool and as a way to think about these commandments to look at now the third one in the same way that I have looked at the first two. I'd like to consider the third commandment in light of three things tonight. You know those three things if you have been there for the first uh, for the sermons on the first two. Namely, I'd like to consider the third commandment uh, and Israel, the third commandment and Christ, and the third commandment and us. Those three lenses, I think, will help us to understand the third commandment in its context, as it's given to Israel, as it's fulfilled in Christ, and it, as it belongs and is applied especially to us who are in Christ. Now, as I address uh, each of the Ten Commandments and Israel, what I have particularly, what I'm particularly trying to call to your attention is something which I think is uh, not really observed as it ought to be, uh, but it should be. And it is this, that these commandments, one by one, Though they are given to Israel one by one, they are broken by Israel in roughly a chronological way through the Old Testament. Israel breaks commandment after commandment. Now, that might have been somewhat obscured in the first two commandments because the incident where they break the first two commandments is, in fact, the same incident. It is that incident found in Exodus chapter 32, where on the one hand, uh, Israel comes with their gold ornaments to Aaron, and they say, make for us gods. Well, that's certainly a breaking of the first commandment, but uh, Aaron then uh, takes those things and says, well, here, tomorrow we will hold a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord, as if you could redeem that idolatrous effort uh, now to worship the, the living God who, who is not embodied, uh, captured, bounded in any way by any created form. Aaron seeks to worship him by the form of the golden calf. And so both the first and second commandments are broken in the second book of the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus. But in a very unique way, the third commandment is broken in the third book 
of the Bible, which is also the third book of the Pentateuch. And next week, we'll see that the fourth commandment is broken in a unique way in the fourth book of the Bible. But tonight, I'd like us to consider uh, the third commandment in relation to Israel. And there is a unique way in which this commandment was broken by Israel, and that's found in the third book, the book of Leviticus. And you can either turn or listen to me as I read to you from Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. Now I'm going to read to you um, a few verses here, but please pay attention to it. Leviticus chapter 24, beginning with verse 10. We read this. It's a story, that, an account that you, you should certainly be familiar with. Leviticus 24, beginning at verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shemolith the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan, and they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God, shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Very remarkable passage. Uh, One commentator points out something uh, quite unique about this passage, which I think is worth thinking about. He says this, The violator is unnamed, making the story somewhat surreal and didactic. Through the disobedience of this anonymous man, precedent is set for any future violations of this commandment. Indeed, the admonition given against Taking the Lord's name in vain in the third commandment is that, what? God will not hold the one guiltless who takes his name in vain. And certainly, this episode is testimony to that very fact. Now, why is using God's name in vain? Why is that such a horrible offense, a capital offense, in fact, in Israel? Well, we'll look more at this in our third point, but let me just make this point here. The name God gives in Exodus is the name which he identifies himself with. uh, Well, the name that is being spoken of here is the name that he gives earlier in the book of Exodus. In chapter 3, when Moses comes to him and says, well, what is the name that I should tell is uh, the name of the God who is sending me when they ask? And earlier, even in this chapter, in chapter 20, in verse 2, it is that name, the Lord Yahweh, again, which derives from that section in chapter 3 where God says, my name? I am that which I am. I am the self-existent, self 
determined, self-contained one upon whom everything and everyone else depends. That is who I am. That is my name. And so in a real sense, to misuse, to distort God's name, which is particularly that name, Yahweh, is to pervert who God himself is. And thus, it is a serious, serious thing to misrepresent who God is through a misuse of his name. And again, I will explain this a little more later in the third point. But at the heart of this offense, uh, the heart of the offense contemplated here is to use the holy name of God in an irreverent way. And the point I want to make here with respect to the third commandment in Israel is this. One by one, one by one, Israel breaks these, what Deuteronomy chapter 4 calls these ten words. So that in a very unique way, Israel's failure to obediently serve the Lord by keeping his law, uh, it, it, is, it is an act of rebellion which replicates an earlier act of rebellion, even that of Adam which resulted in what? Adam was to be cast out, sent away from God's life-giving presence. And so after Israel breaks all ten of God's commandments in a very public, historical way, all of the evidence is there for the prophets. And if you don't know, the prophets, by the way, are God's lawyers. They come and they execute God's lawsuit. In Israel, among the things that Israel does is they irreverently treat God's name. The verdict then when the prophets come is this, depart from me, go into exile, go into judgment. That is the verdict which Adam, the first son, received. That is the verdict which Israel, the corporate son, received. And that is the verdict which you and I, we will receive that verdict unless there is another son of God. Of course, that rightly brings us to our second point, doesn't it? the third commandment, and Christ. The third commandment and Christ. Now remember for a moment the charge brought against the man in Leviticus chapter 24. What precisely was that charge? What was he charged with? Well, the precise charge was that that, that man was blaspheming the name. In Hebrew, Hashem, which is simply the name. It's clear there that, um, you know, when it says the name, there's only one name <laughs> that one would blaspheme that would be worthy of death. The name of the living and true God. God's holy name was blasphemed. Now, why do I bring that up? That's true of the man of Leviticus chapter 24. What was the precise charge that was brought against our Lord? The precise reason ultimately why the Jews condemned him to death. What was the reason why they said, you are worthy to die? Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 63, there at his trial, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. 
What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. The Jews condemned Jesus for blaspheming the name of God. Of course, in his life, he had always hallowed. He had always reverenced, sanctified the holy name of God and had taught his disciples to do the same, teaching them to pray. Pray to your father. Father, hallowed be your name. And yet the testimony that he gave over and over again, which is very clear in the Gospel of John, is God's name, Jesus says, is also my name. And because the Jews wrongly misunderstood him, they condemned him to death for this supposed blasphemy. In a real sense, we could say that Jesus was condemned for breaking the third commandment. But what is the ultimate verdict which Jesus receives from the hand of God concerning the blaspheming of that name? Is he, is he, did he blaspheme that name by claiming it as his own name? No. And that's why I read to you earlier Philippians chapter 2. Let me, let me read that to you again, beginning only from verse 6. We read this, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now listen, because this is the important part. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there in that passage, we read that God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name that is above every name. What was that name that was bestowed on him when God highly exalted him? From the text, it it reads in such a way that some conclude it's the name Jesus, because it goes on to speak in the next verse. So at the name of Jesus, uh, and, and the name of Jesus is important, but that's really not what Paul is saying here, that the name Jesus is conferred on him in his exaltation. The name uniquely bestowed on him in his exaltation and his resurrection is the name Lord. Indeed, it is God's verdict declared publicly to the entire cosmos that he is not only the one who is obedient to the point of death, but he is the one uniquely worthy to bear God's name. We know this because the language of Philippians 2, if you you didn't know this, the language which goes on to say every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. You know where that's taken from in the Old Testament? The book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45. In Isaiah chapter 45, it speaks on and on and on about Yahweh, which if you see the Greek translation of that, it's always translated the Lord, Hakurios. And it says this, beginning in verse 22 of Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's no other. 
For by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return, uh, that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. That is said of Yahweh, of the Lord. And here, Paul says, that that is what is true of Jesus. Every knee shall bow to him. Every tongue shall confess to him. Because why? That name which is declared of him, particularly in his resurrection, is that he is Lord. Now, of course, he was already God. Because Paul says earlier in this passage that uh, he was already in the form of God. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But in his resurrection is both the announcement of his true personhood as well as the exaltation of his status as the God-man. And now here's the, the point that everyone should be taking away. Now, there is absolutely no way There is no reverencing of the name of God. None without reverencing the name of Jesus. It was given to him the name Lord so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. He is Lord. There is absolutely no way that any Jew or anyone else for that matter, any human being, Uh, can properly keep the third commandment without reverencing the name of Jesus. Jesus uniquely has God's name. This is uh, something that stands out so starkly in the Gospel of John. You have to kind of read all the way through the Gospel of John to the very end to get his purpose statement. Most books it's at the beginning, but John puts it at the end. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Who is the one, who is the one whose name grants you life? Life flows from God. John wrote these things that you might have life in and through the name of Jesus. Well, we've looked at the third third commandment in light of Israel, in light of Christ. Now I'd like to look in light, uh, look at the third commandment uh, and us. Now, already at the closing of the last point, I think you see a very appropriate application of the third commandment, which is namely this. uh, You cannot reverence God's name. Um, You cannot avoid taking it in vain, without acknowledging that Jesus bears the name of God in a unique way and that we must come to God through Jesus. But let us consider some other matters as well. Uh, Now I'd like to address something of the language of verse 7 particularly. When God instructs us that his name should not be taken in vain... Uh, what does that mean? Well, uh, let me address, uh, first address the language of to take, uh, to take. That word take could be translated to lift up. Uh, and the word vain is the word for emptiness. Uh, that word emptiness is a word commonly associated with idols. Why? Because an idol is, what else is an idol but something which is empty? It is nothing. It is hollow. And so we see uh, the combination of both those two terms, the lifting up to something which is empty in Psalm 24. 
First, the question in Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The answer, this is a little bit of my own translation, but uh, it is, it's accurate. Psalm 24, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is empty, to what is an idol or swear by a false god. And so again, pointing out that the vanity here, the vanity in view is the emptiness and falseness, the hollowness of the idols. Jeremiah also makes that point clear in Jeremiah 18, 15. But my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. And the word there for false god is vanities. And once we understand the meaning of vanity, uh, that such vanity is associated with the emptiness, the nothingness of the idols, we see that this commandment has the broadest of applications. It is really so, so broad. You see, the Jews um, tried to come up with a way in which they could you know, hedge in and, and sort of keep from breaking this law. Do you know how they did that? Well, they said, well, God's name is so holy, the name Yahweh, which, of course, they knew was the name in view here, that we'll, we'll just not say that name. Uh, when I was in Kingwood, Texas, I was part of a Hebrew reading group for a time uh, led by a, a Jewish individual. And at one time we were reading and we got to a point, and I was translating, and there was a point, and, and, I, and I translated it Yahweh, and that was a no-no. <laughs> you know, I should have said, I think appropriate to the group, Adonai, Lord, or Hashem, the name. And I knew that, but I simply neglected to do that, and so I, I got a mild rebuke for it. But Christians sometimes also misunderstand this commandment as well and seek to uh, break it by limiting it to certain things. When I remember when I was a young person, I was sin- sincerely convinced that if um, uh, so long as I did not say, you know, you know what, I won't say you know what, because it would be inappropriate here, but say various forms of God's name in an inappropriate way. So long as I did not that do that, I would never be in danger of breaking this commandment. I sincerely thought that. What's so clear here is that to truly possess God's name is to possess God's presence. To have God's name on you is to have God himself with you. And that's something which, which comes out clearly even in the book of Exodus a little later. We read this in Exodus chapter 33. Notice uh, the emphasis on the name here. Exodus chapter 33, Moses says to God, Please show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. To have God's name proclaimed to him For Moses to have God's name proclaimed to him was the closest that he could get to beholding his face, which is the hope of every image bearer. Christian, do you realize that God has placed his name, 
God's placed his name, the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's placed that name on you. And you may say, well, when did God do that? When did God put his name on me? Well, he does that in your baptism. We read this from the Great Commission. Jesus says in Matthew 28, Go therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one name. Baptism is baptism into the name of the triune God. That is where God places his name upon you. Old ones and young ones. Question 167 of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks, how is baptism to be improved by us? And won't read the whole answer, it's quite full. But um, it says this, that uh, not only is baptism that event where God gives his name to us, God grants his name to us, but it says at the end, it marks, uh, it, baptism, baptism is that also which marks us and calls us into a solemn vow to yield our name up to him, it says this, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those who therein have given up their names to Christ. You begin to see the beauty, the beauty of this. In baptism, God places his name on you. And yet that's also a, an event where he calls you to give up your name to him so that you may no longer live for yourself, that you may no longer live for your name, that you may live for Christ, and even the name of the triune God. One of the things I think that's significant to think about how we might break God's name, particularly as we think about that individual in Leviticus chapter 24. Remember, he broke God's name in the context of a conflict he had with another person. Isn't it so so often the case when we see individuals using God's name in a vain way when they get in a fight with someone else? Well, my, my cause, my fight, that has God's name behind it. Well, be very careful when you say that. Be very, very, very careful when you say that. God also places his name upon you, the larger catechism says in question 74, in adoption, saying that uh, uh, question 74 says that God's children have his name put on them in their adoption. And it's very interesting, the first proof text that is given for that is the glorious benediction of Numbers chapter 6. Here's the proof text of why God puts his name upon you in adoption. Numbers 26, beginning at verse 20, uh, number 6, beginning at verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Why is that the name uh, that the Westminster divines say? Well, there God is putting his name upon you because in the very next verse after that, which I don't ever read in the benediction, The very next verse says this, verse 7. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. God places his name upon you in your baptism, in your adoption. And every time we close worship, God is putting his name upon you. You are to go forth from this place and to bear his name, not in vain, 
You're not to hold up God's name, not to lift up his name to emptiness and to vanity, certainly not to frivolity, but certainly not to that which is false. You are rather, in Paul's language of Ephesians 4, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And the calling to which you have been called is a calling where you have had God's name placed upon you. Walk in a way worthy of that name. Not that you can do so by your own strength, but ask God by the power of his spirit to grant you a worthy walk according to the worthiness of his name. In fact, that name is that which calls you to abandon and even to be willing to give up every worldly pleasure and privilege. Everything should be sacrificed for that name. Maybe you remember this from the preaching of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. After they were persecuted, uh, the, the apostles, they say this, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Whose name? God's name. Christ's name. God has put his name upon you. God's name is not light. It is not vain. It is not empty. In fact, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word which describes God, he's not light. He's not empty. He's kavod. He's heavy. He's weighty. You have had God's name placed upon you by God's grace. Now by the Spirit's power, do all that you can in this life not to bring dishonor to that name. And as we close, realize this. Um, I think we can say this. There is an eschatology to having God's name placed upon you. Yes, you have had it placed upon you in your baptism. And yet, there is yet a sense in which God is going to consummately place his name on you. There's an already and there's a not yet. Revelation 22, which describes the glory of the new heavens and the new, and the new earth. There, John says this in that New heavens and new earth, Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face. Notice, notice how often these texts connect seeing the face of God with the name of God. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Persevere, Christian. Persevere. Yield up your name to God. Leave everything behind to follow him so that on that final day he may consummately grant you his name, place his name upon you in the full final way in which he has already begun to do so in his bringing you to Christ. So that, and let me close with these words from the first part of Revelation, Revelation 3, verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He will write on you the name of God and his own new name to the one who conquers. Persevere to the end, Christian, in Christ. Persevere. Let's pray.